0: Where do you think you're going with that train? Max growled, standing in her way in the courtyard. You can't hide your full stitch, you vile beastie. Startled, Charlotte stopped in her tracks. She fumed and tried to kick Max. Get out of my way, you pathetic minion. As Charlotte attempted to walk onto the house, Max nipped at her ankles, grabbing the folds of her dress. You're not going anywhere! Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. Today we'll be bringing you Chapter 63 of The Voice of Revolution in the Key called Unjust Deserts and Passing the Mantle. And so, just for this occasion, I took a couple of dessert-making classes so that I could whip up some special things for your hosts. In fact, I probably should go check on one of them in the oven. I'm guessing it needs maybe about ten more minutes. Oh, something sure smells. Good? Uh, <laughs> let's just leave it at something sure smells. Uh, oui, Monsieur annoncer, uh what is that uh, aroma? I say, it seems to be wafting from the kitchen, but then that would suggest it was some type of uh, uh, food. No, that can't Uh, be it. I hardly think that it is. Are you drying out your workout clothes, then? Oh, don't be silly, Max. Indeed, Max. (laughs) You know, the old chap doesn't work out. Uh, Well, it doesn't smell uh, food-like. That's because it's not food, yet. It still needs a little more time in the oven. In fact, I think I need to go check on it. You see, I took a couple of classes on making desserts just for this episode. Now, I realize I've never really been a, a real kitchen whiz or anything, but I got to tell you, I sure learned a lot for just three easy payments of 1995. and, well, I've made something special for each of you. Uh, but I need to go check on those goodies, so why don't you get the show started, gang, and I'll be right back. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and animal species of all kinds, uh, here's your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. I'll be in the kitchen! I know there's five words you never wanted to hear a noncer lad say. I'll be in the kitchen. Now, Max, uh, let us be fair. He did say he took some dessert cooking classes. Indeed, uh, three easy payments of nineteen ninety five, so obviously he spared no expense. But from whence is he taking these said classes? Oh, I-, I saw the flyer for it the other day when I brought in the mail. Well, when it dried off, uh, what did it say? <laughs> I don't know, but I can tell you. The flyer didn't taste so hot. I say, that's not a favorable sign. Uh, but it was from some place called uh, Lucky Louis Dessert Factory. Lucky Louis Dessert Factory? Mmm. Why, that name simply reeks of delectable, uh, delicious. Uh, no, it, it simply reeks. Uh, well, I say, what shall we do? The old boy's planning on treating us to his uh, uh, creations. <laughs> Shh. Quiet. Here he comes. Yep, that's going to be done by time our chapter's complete. I can't wait for you guys to try my delicious desserts. One specially made for each one of you. <laughs> well, then, uh, no hurry in starting the chapter, then. Oh, you want to have dessert first and then read our chapter? No! No! no. That is, uh, we can't keep our audience waiting. Hi, lad, uh, that would be rude. We Monsieur, sure we must respect our time. Yeah, that's true, but that just raises the anticipation for dessert. Just that much higher. Uh, oh, uh, I say, uh, quite so. Uh, well, then, off you go. Uh, go read our next chapter. Hi, lad, and uh, read slow. Chapter 63 Unjust Deserts and Passing the Mantle. Home of Mr. Gilliman, Philadelphia, September 29th, 1774. "'Welcome, friends,' greeted Gilliman as the servant opened the door for Patrick Henry, Richard Henry Lee, George Washington, and John and Samuel Adams. "'I'm so glad you could come.' "'Thank you for having us, Mr. Gilliman,' responded Patrick happily as he shook Gilliman's hand. "'My friend, you never cease to amaze me. How is it that you have been there for so many key moments of my life's journey?' Gilliman smiled and placed his hand on Patrick's shoulder. "'I had a feeling about you from the time I met you as a boy, Patrick. I told you long ago that I have a special interest in young people.' He leaned in to stare Patrick in the eye. "'I believe in investing in lives, for they are the only things that are eternal.' "'That you did, sir.' and I hope the investment you have made in my life is paying off handsomely in your wise eyes, Patrick answered humbly. Gilliman gave a firm nod and a wink. More than you realize, Mr. Henry. As Gilliman welcomed Richard, George, John, and Sam, Patrick spotted Max sitting in the corner. He walked over and crouched down to pet the Scotty. Max wagged his tail happily. Hello there, boy. I used to have a dog like you when I was young. Patrick reminisced. Not just like me, lad, Max thought with a grin as he licked Patrick's hand. (laughs) It were me. It's grand to see ya, Mr. Gilliman, if you recall, I had a Scotty who looked just like yours here, shared Patrick, rising to his feet. His name was Max. Gilliman smiled. Indeed, I do remember what a fine animal he was, so I named mine Max as well. Patrick's face lit up with delight. Remarkable! I, too, have a special fondness for this breed. A Scotty kept me warm one frigid night before the war with the French. I attempted to cross an icy river and fell in, and out of nowhere, a Scotty and a little Westie were there by my side, George Washington recounted, stooping to scratch Max under the chin, making his back foot scratch on reflex. Hey, that were me then, too, lad. Max thought as he licked George Washington's hand. Patrick immediately thought of Kate, who appeared out of nowhere at his father's funeral. Remarkable indeed. I would welcome such a good breed to have on my farm. Rodents keep infesting my crops, George said, getting to his feet. Scottish terriers are well-bred to round them up. Indeed, there is no finer breed to protect humans and round-up pests. Gilliman answered with a broad grin, winking at Max. "'Gentlemen, shall we?' He held up his hand to usher his guests into the dining room. As the men took their seats, servants bustled about, bringing in trays of delicacies and filling the guests' crystal goblets. Max stood guard, watching the humans as they were being served. "'How have you enjoyed your stay here in Philadelphia, Mr. Gilliman?' John Adams asked. "'I understand you hail from London.' "'It's been a splendid stay, as always,' Gilliman answered. "'Although it is the largest city in America, "'its 25,000 inhabitants cannot, of course, "'match the million souls residing in the crowded city of London. "'But Philadelphia is a beautiful city "'filled with so much activity, culture, and commerce. "'The theatre here is especially grand.' "'I do enjoy plays.' So would very much like to attend the theater while we are in Philadelphia, George Washington interjected. What is currently playing? Gilliman smiled and looked at Patrick. Cato will be performed soon. Uh, Perhaps we could attend together. Patrick tapped the table excitedly. Mr. Gilliman, I would be delighted to go see Cato with you. I am not so fond of plays as is Colonel Washington, but this play I definitely would like to see. He turned to the other gentleman at the table. Mr. Gilliman actually sent me a copy of the play Cato when I was a youth. My father had just begun tutoring me and quickly introduced me to Plutarch's lives. (laughs) I recall giving a report on Cato the Younger. Cato is a riveting story of patriotism, George Washington said as he nodded thoughtfully, and it is undoubtedly my favorite play. I believe it is a favorite of many patriots gathered here at the Congress, John Adams added. We may fill up the theater with delegates. Let's make a night of it, shall we? Richard Henry Lee suggested happily. Huzzah! It sounds as if you shall have an entourage to attend Cato with you, Mr. Gilliman, Patrick enthused. (laughs) Nothing would please me more, Gilliman answered with a good-natured glance at Max. Max. (laughs) "'He's been planning this all along,' Max thought with a grin. "'I'll make the arrangements,' Gilliman offered. "'My neighbor has actually done some work on theatrical costumes.' "'I noticed the boarding house next door had a sign out front for a seamstress,' Sam Adams noted. "'Yes, that seamstress is the star seamstress of Philadelphia, I assure you. In fact, I was so impressed with her work that I commissioned her to make me a new cloak, Gilliman answered, rising from the table to retrieve the new cloak to show the men. He handed it to George Washington. Of course, with the new non-importation of British goods, she made my cloak from homespun fabric. George Washington raised his eyebrows. I am quite impressed with her workmanship and will have to keep her in mind. What is her name? Her name is... "'Betsy Ross,' Gilliman answered with a knowing grin. "'It is indeed a wonderful cloak, Mr. Gilliman, "'but I cannot imagine you not wearing that magnificent red cloak of yours,' "'Patrick Henry added. "'I've always admired it.' "'Gilliman smiled, but didn't answer. "'Soon the servants brought in the first course of dinner, "'and the men got into a lively discussion "'about the issue of the Indians out on the frontier.' Lord Dunmore and his armies should have been engaged in battle by then, but the delegates had not heard any news from the Ohio country. Max sat and listened, catching Gilliman's eye occasionally, and thinking about Clary out there in the midst of the conflict. My compliments to your cook, Richard said, dabbing the corners of his mouth, as the servants cleared their plates following the last course of dinner. What a splendid meal. Thank you, sir. "'Our regular cook suddenly took ill this afternoon, "'so we had to bring in a new cook this evening,' the servant girl explained. "'I'll pass on your compliments. "'Dessert will be out shortly.' "'Patrick Henry patted his stomach. "'I don't know if I can eat another bite.' "'Max looked at the company of men gathered there. "'They were some of the most important men attending the First Continental Congress. "'Then Max grew concerned to hear that the regular cook suddenly took ill.' He growled and decided to make sure everything was secure. He followed the servant back to the kitchen, which was in a separate building behind the grand house. "'Not that way!' the bossy cook screamed at the young girl assisting her. She grabbed the bowl and wooden spoon and beat in the sugar at a feverish pitch. "'You must beat it into the cream without mercy. Now do it right before I box your ears again!' "'Yes, Miss Charlotte?' the servant girl replied fearfully. She took the bowl and spoon and did as she was told. "'And you put the cakes and berries on the plates and set them on the tray!' Charlotte ordered another girl. "'I'm going to deliver the desserts myself and need to change into something more presentable.' Max's eyes narrowed as he stared at the substitute cook, Miss Charlotte. She was wearing a great deal of perfume that left a heavy waft of fragrance in the air as she stomped around the kitchen, barking orders at the servants. But it was anything but pleasant. It smelled sickly sweet, as if it was meant to cover up a heavy bad odor. When Charlotte stepped out the back door of the kitchen to change, all the servants murmured against her. She is so mean! How did we get stuck with her? one girl spat. "'And why would our usual cook send her?' "'Another girl questioned. "'I hope she's not here tomorrow. "'I don't think I can handle staying here another minute.' "'What happened to our usual cook anyway?' "'A third girl asked. "'She seemed fine yesterday. "'I don't know. "'Maybe it was something she ate,' the first girl answered. "'I don't care how good a cook this Charlotte is "'or how much the guests like her meal. "'I hope she's gone tomorrow.' "'Something she ate?' Max growled. Uh, I think this Charlotte ain't who she seems to be. As Charlotte came back into the kitchen, she had tidied up her hair and slipped on a nicer dress. She inspected the silver serving tray to make sure the little cakes were topped with berries, as she had ordered. When the servant girl with the bowl of cream came over to top the desserts, Charlotte snapped the bowl from her hands. I'll do this. It needs to be done right. Go clean up the dishes, she grumbled. All of you!" The servant girls turned to take the dirty dishes out back to wash. When they were gone, Charlotte pulled a vial from her pocket. She smiled and poured it into the batter of cream. Last but not least, my secret ingredient. She mixed in the liquid and poured the cream on top of the cakes. Now to serve them, they're just desserts. She chuckled darkly and picked up the tray to leave the kitchen. Where do you think ye are going with that tray? Max growled, standing in her way in the courtyard. Ye can't hide your full stench, ye vile beastie. Startled, Charlotte stopped in her tracks. She fumed and tried to kick Max. Get out of my way, you pathetic minion. As Charlotte attempted to walk on to the house, Max nipped at her ankles. Grabbing the folds of her dress, You're not going anywhere! He growled through his clenched jaws as he tugged and tugged. You parasite, get off of me! Charlotte screamed as she desperately tried to keep the tray from toppling over while struggling to get free of Max's grip. Suddenly, Max shook his head wildly, and Charlotte lost her balance. The silver tray went flying through the air, sending the fine china plates crashing onto the brick courtyard. No! She screamed as she sat in the middle of the mess of broken dishes and dessert. As Charlotte scrambled to her feet, Gilliman appeared at the doorway of the house to see what had happened. Begone! You have no authority here! Charlotte wore a grotesque expression, but Max detected her shivering at Gilliman's rebuke, as if she was afraid. She scowled and ran off into the night. Gilliman! "'She were going to poison those lads with them tainted treats,' Max cried. "'Well done, Max. She's gone now,' Gilliman answered with a frown. "'I'll let our guests know there will be no dessert, which I don't think they will mind.' He turned to go back in the house. "'I'm sure they would prefer no desserts to unjust desserts.' City Tavern, Philadelphia October 20th, 1774. At the end of six weeks, the First Continental Congress had accomplished a great deal besides passing the Suffolk Resolves. They drafted a Declaration of Rights and Grievances for the repeal of the Thirteen Acts Parliament had passed since 1763. They wrote a memorial to the American colonies and a petition to the King. They voted to halt all imports of British goods and exports of American goods to England, to be enforced by the Continental Association. This would be a network of committees formed in every city and town throughout the colonies to enforce non-importation and non-consumption of British goods, along with non-exportation of American goods to England. And they called another Continental Congress to meet in May of 1775. A week still remained to wrap up some of the business of the Congress. Patrick Henry and the Virginia delegates had worked hard with men from other colonies these last few weeks, but they had also enjoyed many dinners and social events, including attending the play Cato with Mr. Gilliman. Nigel had arranged for Cato the eagle to also come to the theater to celebrate the birth of his baby eaglets. Nigel and Cato peeked in from a window high above the theater rooftop to watch the play. Nigel had never seen an eagle weep, So it was a touching moment for the little mouse as well. Cato was so moved after seeing the play come to life that he decided to name one of his eaglets Plutarch. He named the other two eaglets Veritas, meaning truth, and Alexander, meaning greatness. Cato would remain in Philadelphia until the eaglets were old enough to be on their own. Then he would return to Scotchtown. Gilliman left Max at the city tavern for George Washington with a note on his collar that his upcoming travels would not permit him to take the dog along. He hoped Max would serve Colonel Washington well at Mount Vernon. George was thrilled and couldn't wait to take the Scottish Terrier home to Martha. Little did he know he was taking home the same Scotty who had protected him before and during the French and Indian War. Nigel decided he would go with Max to visit Washington's plantation. Some delegates, such as Patrick Henry, would be heading home the next day to make the tentative November Assembly of Burgesses in Williamsburg, while others stayed behind to tie up loose ends. But tonight, there was a grand dinner, hosted by the newly elected, more radical Pennsylvania Assembly at the City Tavern. It was an evening of elegant entertainment, with music, dancing, and bountiful food. Toasts were raised to the First Continental Congress, as the delegates congratulated one another on a job well done. One of the Quaker delegates offered up a solemn toast. May the sword of the parent never be stained with the blood of her children. John Adams and Patrick Henry sat together in a corner to have a private farewell. The two men had grown close in these past few weeks. They differed in their backgrounds, temperaments, and talents. But they shared the vision that America not only needed, but likely would see become reality. I fear that however necessary or expected by the American people our resolves, declarations of rights, remonstrances, and non-importation agreements might be to cement the union of the colonies, they will be nothing but waste paper in England, stated John Adams in his low, gravelly voice. Patrick Henry pursed his lips and nodded gravely. They might make some impression among the people of England, but I agree with you they will be totally lost upon the government. He sighed deeply. Richard Henry Lee and the other Virginia delegates, besides Washington and myself, believe that our work here will be victorious and carry our points forward without war. Colonel Washington is in doubt as to what will happen, and I feel we will have no choice but to fight. John pulled an envelope from his pocket. My friend from Northampton, Major Joseph Hawley, sent me this short and hasty letter. Herein he gives a few broken hints as to the course he feels the colony should take. Allow me to share some of his sentiments. He opened the letter, and Patrick leaned in to listen as John read portions aloud. We must fight. If we can't otherwise rid ourselves of British taxation, all revenues or the constitution, or form of government enacted for us by the British Parliament. It is evil against right, utterly intolerable to every man who has any idea or feeling of right or liberty. America's salvation depends upon an established, persevering union of the colonies. Every grievance of any one colony must be held and considered by the whole as a grievance to the whole. This will be a difficult matter, but it must be done. It is now or never that we must assert our liberty. After all, we must fight. Patrick Henry snapped his head up in a burst of energy and vehemence and exclaimed, By God, I am of that man's mind. John Adams nodded and folded the letter, understanding Patrick's bold and solemn declaration. He knew that Patrick was making a sacred oath, not cursing. "'You may not know this yet, but you are being likened to Demosthenes, while Richard Henry Lee is being likened to Cicero for your oratory and leadership, both in Virginia and in this Congress,' shared John Adams with a warm grin. Patrick wore a resolute smile. "'I shall endeavor to live up to such a commendation.' He leaned forward, Plutarch penned the following in his biography about Demosthenes. When Demosthenes was asked what was the first part of oratory, he answered, Action. And which was the second? He replied, Action. And which was the third? He still answered, Action. Mr. Adams, it is time for us to return home and take our oratory to action. Agreed. "'John Adams replied as the men stood "'and shook hands in farewell. "'Farewell, John,' Patrick said. "'Stay safe in Boston. "'May God bless the work of the Congress, "'and may God bless America.' "'Thank you, my friend,' John replied. "'Godspeed. "'Until May, keep speaking boldly for liberty.' "'Patrick bowed and smiled. "'Indeed I will, sir.' "'As Patrick turned to leave,' A servant from the tavern approached him. Mr. Henry, this package was left for you earlier today. He handed Patrick the package, wrapped in brown paper and tied with twine. Thank you, Patrick said, taking the package in hand. He looked for a note on the outside, but didn't see anything attached. He wore a puzzled expression as he ascended the wide staircase of the city tavern to reach his room and turn in for the night. He set the package on the table and pulled on the twine. His eyes grew wide as he saw that it was Mr. Gilliman's magnificent red cloak. Sitting on top was a note. "'Dear Patrick, it seems only fitting that I pass on my red cloak to you, now that I have a new cloak. Consider this a symbolic gesture of passing the mantle of responsibility on to you, the next generation of leaders for the people.' I am extremely proud of all you have accomplished as a lawyer, a burgess, and now a delegate to the First Continental Congress. You have become the voice of the revolution for the people of America. Never stop speaking the truth that the people need to hear in the fight for liberty. Many dark days lie ahead, but I know that you will be a light on the path to freedom for America. I also have placed an item of priceless value within the cloak. Use it well. Godspeed, Mr. Gilliman." Thank you, Mr. Gilliman, Patrick whispered as he wiped away a tear of gratitude. He reached his hand into the pocket of the red cloak, and his hands felt something curious. He pulled out the item and ran his finger along its edge. It was an ivory letter opener. I say, I've a feeling this ivory letter opener will play a greater role than one would think on just faith. Face- ah! uh, shh! Hey, uh, but uh, we'll wait for another episode to find it out, then, won't we? Careful there, blabbermouse. Uh, indeed. Uh, sorry, old chap. Uh, my bad. And speaking of bad. Hey, gang, your desserts are ready. Uh, shouldn't they cool or set up for a couple of uh, hours? Days? No, Liz. In fact, yours is actually served au flambe. You're going to set it on fire? Oh, uh, this just keeps getting better. Aye, the last be right. Uh, we should probably wait a wee bit. I myself had a great big lunch right before the show. Uh, and I'm afraid I've been nibbling all day myself. <laughs> Silly me. Well, okay, they're, they're better when they're fresh out of the oven. Uh, better than what? Uh, but moving right along, isn't it time for Jenny's Corner? Oh, it must be. Uh, uh, greetings, Miss Jenny. Hey, everybody. Uh, I say, Miss Jenny, this is one of those chapters where you seem to invent creative ways to make sure history is carried out properly, uh, but only through the help of we epic animals, huh? Uh, what say you?
1: This was a fun scene to write, and it's fiction, but it's plausible fiction again. When the founding fathers were gathered in Philadelphia for the first and second continental Congress, they went out to eat a lot, just as John Adams wrote about their long days and meeting and then dining. So they ate at City Tavern, they went to people's houses, and of course I have mister Gilliman hosting them. And That would be the case. They would have someone local who would host them for dinners, and then they would discuss the events of the day. And, of course, I have my fantasy element going with my characters and the animals and getting them all in place and some bad scenes with Kakia.
0: Uh, Miss Jenny, I know you often include real items or
1: props that uh, did, in fact, exist. That's a fun thing that I like to do, is take an object that we know was there that was real and incorporate how the character came to own the object.
0: Can you give us an
1: example? The red cloak. Ah, bien sûr. Uh, So then, how do we know the red cloak be real? Patrick Henry was painted in having this glorious red cloak in the famous Rothermel painting that is at Patrick Henry's Red Hill. We're not sure where he had it, but he was painted in it for another painting as governor.
0: I say, and and what other little features have you included?
1: You'll see a couple of little Easter eggs in this chapter. One is, of course, Betsy Ross. And you'll, of course, learn more about her in an upcoming book, because she has a flag to help Washington with. The other Easter egg object in this chapter is the ivory letter opener. And, of course, you're going to see a big scene with the ivory letter opener This is a real object. You can go see it today at Patrick Henry's Red Hill. I love tangible history, don't you? Things that you can touch and see. Oui, madame. It
0: seems to bring it all back to life. So are there any other uh, plausible fictional events that you have included in this chapter?
1: Things like seeing the play Cato. We know that Cato was George Washington's most favorite play. And it's very plausible that they all went to the theater in Philadelphia to go see k And of course that is also a setup for liberty or death and you're going to see more about that.
0: Uh, 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 spoiler alert, lass, uh,
1: we'll see if that one for later then.
0: Indeed. So then uh, any other subtle takeaways you would care for us all to glean?
1: The friendships that formed between these founding fathers, you know, before the first Continental Congress, these guys had never met one another. There was some correspondence, but It was kind of an odd thing when you had these southern colonies and northern colonies get together. They saw each other very differently as separate nations. But then as they start coming together, as they had to, to survive and to accomplish this impossible feat of independence, these deep friendships formed. And John Adams and Patrick Henry developed a deep, long-lasting friendship that lasted through correspondence in the years that followed. That's a really neat thing to consider. Again, what did that look like when they met and what did they discuss and how did they encourage one another to press on and keep up the good fight? I hope that gives you a glimpse of maybe what it looked like when they all gathered together and the fun Easter eggs that I like to put whenever I can.
0: I say, brilliant. Thank you, Miss Jenny. Oui, très bien, madame. It makes me want to go back and listen to it all over again. Yeah, but don't forget, Liz, uh, I made you each a special dessert. Oh, now I really want to go back and listen again. Hi, lass, over and over and over. Oh, come on, you haven't even given him a chance. Ah, indeed, the old chap is right, my pet. We, oui. okay, then. Uh, gentlemen, let's, uh, let's take one for the gipper. President Reagan? Uh, monsieur? What uh, delicacy have you whipped up for a special feline that you would never want to hurt in any way? Oh, for you, madame, uh, nothing less than a French favorite with a little feline twist. I present Crepes Lizette. (laughs) It's the uh, traditional favorite, but instead of using orange zest, I've added Le Petit Friskies and some ground catnip. And, of course, a little Grand Monnier, uh, so that we can light it on fire, or flambe. No flambe! <laughs> uh, monsieur, that would be uh, far too much trouble. <laughs> Aye, and I don't think our insurance covers it either. Uh, right. Uh, so, what have you prepared for our brave Scottish terrier? <laughs> Aye, Mosey, you had to throw in the brave part, didn't you? <laughs> Quite so, old chap. <laughs> well, for you, Max, nothing less than a Scottish favorite, an Ecclefec tart. Aye? Only with ground doggy bone treats and a wee hint of beef liver and vinegar. Aye? Oh, you'll love it, Max. Aye? And for you, Nigel... Oh, be still my heart. Nothing less than tiny little snickerdoodle scones. And uh, what did you do to them to mess uh, to uh, <laughs> personalize them for Nigel? Well, I just iced them with a little peanut butter brown sugar glaze. Is that too sweet for you, Nigel? <laughs> my dear boy... Uh, there's none too sweet for a Monaco mouse. <laughs> I heard that. We must be related. Oh, heavens no. Uh, well, uh, then, uh, as Liz would say, uh, bon appétit. Or as Max would say, bon appétit. <laughs> I do hope his desserts are better than his jokes. Well, mes here goes. <makes> no, <noise> uh, sir, lad. Uh, it's still Danny. I, <sighs> uh, Danny boy. <laughs> this echelfecken doggy tart be absolutely scrumptious. We, oui. I am astounded. The crepes lisette is twa 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 bien. And the little hint of catnip? <laughs> Ooh-la-la! La. Uh, you must give me the recipe, Monsieur Denis. Al will go absolutely his usual self. Ah, oh, merci. I couldn't get a better compliment than that. Uh, how about your scones, Nigel? <coughs> I'll take that as two tiny little thumbs up. Well, then, uh, I say we close out the show, then. Uh, we got more desserts to eat, eh? Oh, I'm so glad you like them. Right, Nigel? Uh-huh. Aye, <laughs> and to think Liz didn't think they'd be any good. Me? What about you and your... Read this chapter slowly? Uh, what about your... Let's let them cool for a couple of days? Well, Nigel was just as bad. We, Nigel? Can't talk. Uh, eating. <laughs> well, I think that's says it all, then. Uh, so long, lads and lasses. <laughs> uh, we'll see you next time. We're going back for seconds, then. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grand day! A biento, And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.